Our reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 12, commencing at verse 9. And this can be found on page 1139. Romans chapter 12, commencing at verse 9. Love in action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Nice short passage. So, um, you know, fairly straightforward. Should be able to just summarize this in a few minutes, probably, and, and then we can move on. Um, it's not true, though, is it? <laughs> it's never true with Paul, I don't think. And, um, you know, the, the letter to the Romans is, is such an amazing piece of scripture. Such an amazing piece of scripture. Um, and I'm going to try this morning as best I can in the time that we have just to try and unpack a little bit of what Paul is saying here to the Roman church and the connections between the various lines, what's come before and what comes after, um, and um, with the Spirit's help, hopefully we will all learn a little bit more about love. So let's just pray before we get started. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for language and all of its richness. We thank you that you've given us minds and intelligence and that you want us to understand you better each day that we walk with you. And we just pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you'll help us, that you'll sharpen our minds and our focus. You'll help us to learn, but also do as you would do. Amen. Okay, so... Um, Obviously, following on from Fran's talk last week, um, this, this is, the, the letter to the Romans is a really interesting one, I think. Um, I know some people are coming on Thursday nights, starting um, this week, um, to my house to look at the letter to the Philippians, which is also by Paul, but a very, very different letter, the letter to the Philippians, and some of the other letters in the Bible are quite short and read like fairly normal letters in that sense. They're like receiving a letter from someone that you know, and they're relatively short. Obviously, they wouldn't have been structured in chapters in the original. We do that, because um, that would be a bit strange if you were writing a letter to a friend, chapter two, uh, let me tell you what I did yesterday. Um, we do that, because it's just convenient. Um, but if you look at some of the shorter letters in the Bible, they read just like regular letters, like a letter from a friend. Um, that doesn't mean there isn't huge depth to them or theology in them, but you can tell that their main purpose was just to kind of update a community about what was going on or to thank them for something or to ask them for something. 
But I think you know, don't you, when you read a book like Romans, it's a letter, but you know it's something different, don't you? Because this is not a normal letter. You wouldn't typically write to people that you know and lay out a systematic theology as part of your letter. You wouldn't typically do that unless you had a particular goal in mind or there was a particular reason for it. Um, And what's really interesting about Romans, if we just take the bird's eye view for a moment, is that pretty much everything up to what we call chapter 12 is is quite theological. It's really kind of Paul laying out and um, explaining the way that he thinks about Christ, explaining to this church, this is how I see it. This is what I think who I think Christ is, this is what I think he's done, this is what I think it means. And so the first 11 chapters are quite theological, and I think sometimes if you're a new Christian you try and read Romans, it can be quite heavy in the first half, and there's lots in it to chew through, and you won't necessarily understand it all, and and neither do I, by the way. Um, But actually, once you hit chapter 12, did you all notice that chapter 12 begins with the word therefore? Therefore. And what that does is it marks a turning point in the book of Romans to say, given all of that theology stuff that I've just explained to you in lots of detail, given all of that, therefore, this is how we should be. That's what the back half is about, or the back third. So we're in the kind of practical section of Romans, which is really useful. It's really, really useful. And so this back half from chapter 12 onwards is this is how we should be, church. This is what we should look like. And we should look like this and be like this because of all the truth that I've laid out in the first 11 chapters. And that's why chapter 12 begins with therefore. And I know that this isn't my section, but there's that really, really important line that I want us to hold in mind as we study. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's why I think Paul spends 11 chapters laying out some of the truths about who Jesus is, because unless we know who Jesus is, unless we know who we are because of what Jesus has done, we won't think in the right way. And if we don't think in the right way, we won't make the right choices about how to be the people of God. And that's why he's saying, be transformed in the renewing of your mind. And I want to explore that. So one of the things I think that we need to be transformed in the renewing of our minds about is what is love and how does it work? What is it How does it operate? I think in our Western culture, we need to be transformed in our thinking about what love actually is. Do you agree with that? I think the dominant culture about what love is isn't particularly helpful, and neither is our language. I am a language nerd. I'm going to confess that. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about a few Greek words. I don't kind of read fluent ancient Greek, and I just look this stuff in a book, okay? It's not knowledge that I have, but I think if we're going to understand this passage, we need to get around a problem, which is that we've got one word for love, and that is a problem to us as a modern Christian, understanding what on earth Paul's talking about, because we've only got one word for love, okay? And that's tricksy, whereas in the Greek language, there are lots of words for love, and some of them are being used in this passage, but when we see it translated, it just says love, 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 but they're all different things, and I want to explore that with you today as well. What we need to know about the Roman church, the church that Paul's writing to, is that they were a really mixed community. 
It's a big city, of course, Rome, and it's made up of lots of house churches. And each church has a slightly different composition, um, culturally, uh, racially, ethnically. um, There's quite a a mix in the Roman church. And it's not unlike, I don't think, the situation we have in Bath, where there's an Anglican church here, and there's a Baptist church here. Um, and there's perhaps a Catholic church here, and there's a Methodist church here. And what you've got is you've got communities of believers who all have slightly different cultures. And that is the wider church in Rome that Paul is writing to, including some people who are Jewish Christians and some people who are Gentile Christians who are trying to get along together and be one family of God. And we know, don't we, that that can be quite tricky sometimes. <laughs> We know that can be quite tricky. It's hard enough sometimes if we all kind of, you know, if we're all here, we might call ourselves Anglicans, say. But we know even, even here that's not always easy. But if you start mixing together lots of different churches with different ways of doing music and different ways of doing prayer, that can be tricky as well. And Paul is trying to exhort this church in Rome with all the other pressures of being in a big city like Rome and the cultures and the pantheon of gods that exist outside of the Christian faith. And he's saying, you've got to operate somehow as one body, which is what Fran was talking about last week. You've got to be one body somehow. This has got to work. You've got to connect and interconnect. And what I believe our passage is about today is it's saying, if you're going to work as one body, the oxygen in that system is love. The oxygen in that system is love. Or if we were many moving parts of an engine, the oil that makes the parts move together is love. And so we need to be transformed in the way we think about love if this is going to work. And it has to work, everybody, because otherwise people out there won't know what God's love looks like unless we do it right. That's one of our main jobs on earth. Okay? One of our main jobs. So we need to understand what we're being asked to do so that we can get it right. There's nothing more frustrating, is there, where you're being asked to do something. You don't quite know what's expected of you. So how fortunate are we that Paul took the time to explain what some of these things might look like? And then it's easy, right? We just do it. Easy. Right? It's there. It's pretty clear. Almost doesn't need preaching, really. Just, you know, hate evil, do good, be nice to each other. Obviously, it's more complicated than that. So... Here we go. So I've got a picture. Have you got my picture that I asked you for? Because it was a picture that came to me this morning as we were driving in. Yeah, a kaleidoscope, kaleidoscope image. I think our problem is that we've got this one word, love, but we have to see love as a kaleidoscope thing. It can't be one-dimensional. If it's one-dimensional, we've missed the point. It's many-dimensional. And the love that God has for you and me and us as a church and for his world is kaleidoscopic in its nature. It is not just one thing. It's infinite, it's kaleidoscopic, and we need to try and grasp that a little bit. And that's why Paul begins in our passage, and we'll move on now, thank you. Hold the kaleidoscope in your mind because I'll refer to it again. In our passage, it begins like this. Love must be sincere. Love must be sincere sincere. Sounds fairly straightforward, but I'd like to unpack a little bit what that might mean. Does anyone know what word is being used there? This is a bit of a nerd quiz. What word is being used there? Well, we've got the word love. Who would like to take an educated guess, if you haven't studied this recently, about what word actually Paul is using? 
It is agape. Agape. Can we move on the slide, please? Agape. Yeah. Agape anupokritos. Agape anupokritos. And do you see the word hypocrite in there, in that second word? Yeah. Anupokritos means unhypocritical. So what Paul is saying to us, when it says love must be sincere, he's saying you've got to have agape that is unhypocritical, that's real. And we know what a hypocrite looks like. It's somebody who says one thing and does another. So agape, love, for it to be sincere or real or honest or true or in any way reflective of the way that God loves you and me is it has to be action and word mirrored together. They have to match because if they don't match, it ain't agape. Agape is about action. It's not about feeling. It's not about feeling. We can do agape in this room even if we don't feel great. Even if someone's irritated you recently, you can still love them in an agape way because it's not an emotion. It's not an emotion. It's a commitment to action. Agape is about action. And agape is the, is the word used in the Bible to describe the nature of God's kaleidoscopic love for his people. It's agape. That's how God loves us. The song that we sang, Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Yeah, the word for that is agape. That's what God's love looks like. In 1 John 4, it says this, This is how God showed his agape, his love, among us. This is what it looks like. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. This is agape. Not that we loved God, but that he loves us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you see that? Agape isn't just he loves you, he likes you, he's proud of you. That's all true as well. He also sent his son for you. It's action. He sent his son, his only son, as an atoning sacrifice for you. That is agape. That's what it looks like. In John 17, it says this, Jesus, I have made you known to them, in praying to the Father, he says, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the agape you have for me may be in them. You see, the love that the Father has for the Son is agape love. It's the most amazing, purest, kaleidoscopic, energizing, active, unconditional love that he has for the Son. He has that for us too. Isn't that amazing? It's not a special pot of love that he only reserves for the Son. He has the same agape for you and me. And what this passage is saying is, and now you have to have that agape love for one another. <laughs> Which is not easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but that's what we're being called to do. That's how it works. God loves his son. He loves him in a very special way. He sent him in order that he can share that agape love. And that in itself is incredible. But now the call, friends, is to say, right, now you distribute even further. You be a mirror for that agape love from the Father. And that's what we're asking 
being asked to do. And it's all about what we do. That's why it's unhypocritical, why it's sincere. It's a love of action that we're being called to. And I think the following verses in our section unpack some of the ways, not all of the ways, but some aspects of that kaleidoscope, some aspects of that agape. And I just want to go through a few of them with you, if that's all right. I think Paul's giving us examples. You should have sincere agape for one another. What does that actually look like? Well, let me give you some examples. What does that mean? So let's go through them together. I'm not going to take them in chronological order because I've grouped them in a slightly different way. I hope that's okay. The first one is in verse 10. Should we look at verse 10 together? Can I have the next slide, please? It says, be devoted to one another in love. And I'm going to stop there. Be devoted to one another in love. Be devoted to one another in love. There's actually two love words in that line. It could say, be loving in love. But obviously, if you're translating, that sounds a bit strange. Oh, thank you. (laughs) It's dark in here suddenly. Be loving in love. There's lots of love in that line because the word devoted is actually a love word. And there are two words in there that I think are really, really interesting. And they're two examples of the ways that agape can work. All right? There are two. One of them is the word Philadelphia, which you probably know as being a city in America, which means love for brothers. Love between brothers and sisters, that's Philadelphia. It's also a cheese, isn't it? (laughs) So we have this kind of cheesy love between us um, that we might call Philadelphia. Philadelphia, kind of, I should leave the cheese really, shouldn't I? But it should flow uh, between us. Um, Philadelphia is love between. And then the other one is um, Philostorgos. And the storgy bit, the suffix of that word, so phil means, or file means love, the storgy bit means like family. And it's actually a word that you might use to describe the love of a parent for a child. Of a parent for a child. That's a special kind of love, isn't it? That's a special kind of love. And so that line, when he says, when Paul says to the church, "Be um, be devoted to one another in love, He's saying, love each other like you are in the same family. Have a love for one another in the church that is of similar depth and profundity as you would in your blood family. The way that you might love your child or your brother or your father or your mother or your sister. That's the kind of love that should be expressed between us Christians. Okay? Everyone okay with that? Now, what's that got to do with being transformed in the renewing of our minds? How are those two things connected? I want to suggest a thought for you. The reason why Paul feels like he can say to us, you should love each other like your brothers and sisters, is because we are. It's because we are. We are. We're family. You're my family. You are all my brothers and sisters, and I'm yours, whether you like it or not, because you can't choose your family. We are family, and so we should love one another as family. And the reason why we are family is because your identity, my identity, has been transformed because we have been made sons and daughters of God. That's what Jesus did for us. He brought us into that family. And if we take seriously the truth that we are children of God, that makes us brothers and sisters. 
and that should affect and direct the way that we love each other. Agreed? It's about being transformed in the renewing of your mind first before you can do the love bit. You know, if we see one another as kind of semi-friends, but also perhaps people we wouldn't necessarily choose to hang out with, and we just meet on a Sunday, and we're just kind of this slightly odd gathering of people, um, then we've completely not had our minds transformed yet about what this church deal is all about. We're family. We're family. And we should love each other like family. Romans 8 says this, the theological bit before the practical bit in the letter, you see, it all leads to the practical outcomes. He says this in Romans 8, Paul, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Sonship. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And therefore, we're all siblings. And therefore, we should love each other like siblings. Otherwise, we're not really thinking like God's children. And we're not seeing each other like God's children either. In Galatians 3, it says this, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're all together in this. We are siblings. That doesn't mean we're not going to fall out sometimes. That's what siblings do. We might pull each other's hair a little bit or steal favorite toy. But ultimately, we are family, and we should love each other and be devoted to one another in this room as siblings. And when people outside see our church, they should see that kind of unity. They should get the sense that they're walking into a family gathering when they're with us. And I think they do. I'm not being critical at all. I love this family, and I always have felt welcomed in this family, and I've always felt like it is a family. I've always felt that. And, you know, I I love the kind of love gesture this morning, give everyone a hug. There's still a part of me that finds that a little bit awkward, but that's me being British and being a bit of a man and just having to, you know, come on. Come on, let's love each other a bit better. You know, let's have a hug. Let's say, oh, you look nice this morning, or how was your week? I know we do that well. I probably don't do it as well as I should, if I'm honest. If I'm honest, I don't do it as well as I should. So it's a challenge for me. Can't choose your family, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> but you can choose to love them like family, can't you? Yes? Should we do that together? Let's commit to that. Because if we do that, we'll be a really powerful church. And then people will see the love of God in us and through us. So that's the first idea. Be like family. Devote yourself to one another. And then the second half of verse 10, if you follow it along with me, he says the next thing. Honor one another above yourselves. This is it's quite hard. I'm, I'm the youngest of four, so, you know, I had a very sense of hierarchy when I was growing up. My big brothers, I knew my place. Um, it's different now that we're older, I suppose, but um, there was a kind of chain reaction. My eldest brother would give my second brother a dead arm, and then he would come and find me and give me a dead arm, and you know, my sister just stayed out of it, really. Um, and, 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 and there was a, um, there was a, you know, families don't always function, but families that function really well are families where we lift one another up. And I think if you're going to honor someone else above yourself, two things have to happen. I think one thing is that you should honor this person and recognize who they are. And I think you should exercise humility here, right? So it kind of does that. I think it's a two-part exchange. It's about humility, me, 
and honor you. And I think if those two things happen in tandem, it's likely that you're going to honor somebody higher than yourself. Do you agree? Yeah? So I think that, I think it's about humility as well. So um, we know, Mark 12, we know that we're, we're given this command to love your neighbor as yourself, and we know that's a, a tricky thing to do. But I do think it's a combination of personal humility, seeing our flaws and mistakes. Paul reminds us in Romans 3.23 that all have fallen short of the glory of God. So we've got no cause to be proud. We should be humble. We should be humble. But we also need to recognize this, and this is really, really important, I think. If we're going to honor one another above ourselves, there's a renewing of the mind that has to happen to enable that love to take place. So part one is I need need to recognize that that I've fallen short. That's the first part of renewing of mind. You see that? I need to recognize that I'm not all that. That's humility. But what do I need to see in you? I need to see in you, in each one of you, in order to honor you properly, that you, every one of you, are the very image of God. The very image of God. That you are wonderfully made. Even though you don't always perhaps feel like it, neither do I. You are. We know that. We know that right from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, where it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. It says it twice, just in case you weren't sure. And it's a poem. It's being rhetorical. We are made in God's image. And it says, male and female, he created them. So it's not just about men, this. This is about all of us. We are made in God's image. That's wonderful. Isn't that great? We've all got the stamp of God on us. Together, we kind of start to, if we put it all together, start to reflect some of the character and wonder of God, some of that kaleidoscope. And if in the renewing of our minds, we start to acknowledge one one another as the image of God walking and talking, then we will honor one another, won't we? Do you see that? Do you see how those things go together? And if sometimes, because we're human, we forget that about each other, we start to think, oh, they're a bit annoying, or, or yeah, they're a bit up themselves, and we forget to honor each other, then that whole thing will break down. So we have to remember in the renewing of our minds that part of the original design of God is that you and I would reflect God's face, God's glory, God's Majesty, just a small piece of that kaleidoscope is in each of us. And therefore, we must honor each other. Not because necessarily we deserve it, but because we're each made in God's image. And in honoring one another, we're honoring God. So we should do that, shouldn't we? That would be good. (laughs) And one of the great ideas about the upside-down kingdom of Christ is that it's not about the way that the world works with honor. It's not about status or position. If we look at the ministry of Christ, we will see that actually he seeks out the most lowly and honors them. He's not interested in hierarchy in a, in a human sense. He's not interested in that, and neither should we be. And if you're in the Roman church, that's quite hard. The Romans were quite hierarchical. They had a pretty good system, you know, not a bad army. You know, they had a political system that was clearly hierarchical. And that needs a transforming of the mind to start to see actually whether you're a slave or not, you're still made in the image of God. And those kind of human hierarchies get in the way of proper agape love. So we need to be careful about that. Everyone okay? Good. Right, next, next tip, how to do agape well as a church. Next tip, verse 13. Jumping around a little bit, I know. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. 
It was a characteristic of the early church, wasn't it, that they looked after one another. If you go into Acts at the beginning, when the church was kind of first forming, chapter 4, it says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. This is a really practical thing. As a family, we should take care of each other practically as well. If there's someone in our church who needs something, the church should be able to meet that need. Whatever that need is, it might be in prayer, it might be financial, it might be someone needs a bed for the night, it might need someone just needs a safe space, or they need advice, or they need a babysitter, or they need to borrow somebody's car because theirs is broken down. This is the reality of being church. If we think church is just kind of, you know, worship, and I don't think we do, by the way, but if we did, we've missed the point. We're a family. You know, can I just borrow that? Yeah, of course you can. Actually, just keep it, keep it for a few weeks. I don't need it back. Just take it. Have it. And that's how we should be. And I'm not trying to, you know, get stuff off you. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I need anything off you today. But I like to believe that if I really did, that people in this church would help me meet my needs. If I was really in trouble, I want to believe that my family's got my back. Yeah? I hope so. I'm sure that's true. has to be true. Otherwise, we're not really a proper family. Galatians 6 says this. And this is, by the way, we talk a lot about being out there. And, and I, I'm all for that. And I know that we want to avoid the appearance that it's like a holy club. But we are a family. And if we don't take, take care of each other, each other first, we can't do the out there ministry. And actually, when people see us, they have to see that evident. Otherwise, they're not going to believe in all this love stuff. So, when people see us, they should see this. And that's why in Galatians 6 it says this. Let us do good to all people, yes, but listen, special. Especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We should take care of each other, like family. And that's not being a holy club. Everyone's welcome to join this family. And as soon as they join this family, they should be treated like family. (laughs) And other people should see our family doing stuff like that and going, gosh, I want a piece of that. That looks amazing. I want to be in that family. I don't know whether growing up there was a family or whether you... Uh, I'll talk about my family for a second. My family, my, my parents were very hospitable. We'll talk about that in a moment. But um, we kind of collected waifs and strays in my family. So um, my, I was one of four. Um, we inevitably had another five or six teenagers around for tea most nights. Um, we had three dogs from a shelter. Um, when I left home, my parents foster cared, and they've had 40 children through their home. They've just got that gift. And so, you know, tea time at my house was kind of 12 kids around the table having tea. And I think that's a really nice image of what the church should be like, personally. So I'm very thankful that I grew up with that ethos. That actually, come on, you know, bring and share. And we're a family, and that's what it should look like. So we should be known friends for our practical care of one another. I say friends, family, brothers, sisters. We should be known for our practical care of one another. And, I mean, the evangelism is amazing, I'm just saying that because I've got a comment here that I don't want you to take the wrong way because the evangelism is amazing. But in my view, alongside that kind of evangelism, the most powerful form of evangelism is the love that we have for each other that other people see. I think you'd agree with that anyway, wouldn't you, Claire? Because those two things go together. It's, it's, it, they're, they're t- it's a two-handed thing, isn't it? You know, 
We, could, we can be as eloquent as we like on the streets. If we don't love each other, if they don't see Christians loving each other, then it's all for naught. It's hypocritical. It's not agape, is it? It's just words and not deeds. So they have to see that in us as well. Keep going. Everyone okay? I'm just unpacking what agape means, and it's got all these layers and many, many more. There are lots of layers to it. So look at verse 13b. There's another one. So we've talked about loving within here, and then it says practice hospitality. Now, just be careful not to think that that just means that we should have one another over for dinner. We should do that too. But that word is another word for love, philo, but it's philo-xenos. You probably know the word xenophobic, which means fear of people who are different from you or fear of strangers. So philo-xenos means love for outsiders and strangers. So that's what hospitality actually, that's the word. It's another kind of love in this passage, that we should love the other. And my belief is that if we're really tight as a family, if we love each other in really practical and real ways, and really we're devoted to each other and we care for one another and we support each other, that empowers us and enables us to love people outside of our church and practice that kind of hospitality. And I don't think hospitality just means having people over for tea or dinner, as they say in in Bath. I say tea because I'm from the north. It's not just about that. Hospitality is an attitude It's about having a welcoming spirit. It's not just about having people over for a meal, although that's a really nice way of expressing hospitality. It is love for somebody who is a stranger to me in some way or is distant from me in some way. We should do that. Hebrews 13 says this, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. That's such a kind of... Cool but unsettling verse, isn't it? (laughs) And there's some interesting examples. If you want to do this study later, if you look at Genesis 18, Abraham um, hosts three people um, and they turn out to be uh, angelic in some way, possibly one of them Jesus himself. And then in Judges 6, I can give you the notes later if you like, Gideon does the same and Manoah in Judges 13. There are examples in the Old Testament particularly where people have entertained strangers and it's turned out that they've been uh, angelic in some way. And I, I just really like... This idea that, um, you know, just in case, uh, we should, we'd, better, we'd better be hospitable because you never know who's there. And, and actually, I think the better point is this. Because everyone is made in the image of God, everyone, every human being, not just Christians, every human being, we should practice hospitality because everyone is made in the image of God. And Jesus says, anything you do for the least of these, you do it for me. And so every time we host someone or are hospitable, just getting someone a coffee on a Sunday morning or just going up to them and saying, oh, hi, are you new here? That's hospitality. Whenever we do that, we're doing that for Jesus. And it's like we're welcoming Jesus into this family at that moment. And I have to be honest with you, I'm not very good at it. I'm not standing here saying I get this right. I really don't. don't, You probably noticed anyone who's had a kind of opening conversation with me. I'm slightly awkward at that kind of um, love of stranger bit. I, just, I, I, find it, I find chit-chat really hard. Um, I need to get better at it. Um, you know, hi, is it your first time here? And then I'm done. Like, I don't know what to say next. Some people are amazing at it, and we've got some really gifted people here who, before you know it, 30 seconds later, they're having like a proper conversation. Like, it takes a while, I think, for me to warm up because that's kind of slightly my character, but I've got to get better at it because that's a form of agape. 
I'd like to get that right if I can. So help me. If you find me floundering, help me out because <laughs> I'm not very good at it. And I bet you actually, no, I, yeah, there are people in here I haven't had proper conversations with. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. I should have done. But this is another way that we show love for each other. Okay, this is agape, unpacked, at least a portion of it. How are we doing? We're okay. A couple more? There's a lot in here. It's quite, aren't you glad I didn't get a big passage? <laughs> What's the first bit? Because it's slightly odd, because it says love must be sincere, and then the next word is hate. Isn't that slightly strange? Because I think sometimes we think of love and hate as binary opposites, don't we? Opposite emotions. But they're really, really not, actually. They can go hand in hand and can be symbiotic in the right context. We should hate what is evil. And this is about unhypocritical love again. We can't be all nice to each other and, you know, do you want to come around for lunch? Oh, I'd love to. And yeah, 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 yeah. But then not be okay with, with people who are being sex trafficked. We can't be. That's, that's hypocritical. We, we, just, we just can't. And we can't be okay with people who are homeless. We just can't be. We have to hate that stuff. Because otherwise love hasn't got any teeth. And love has to have teeth for it to be agape. It's not all soft and fuzzy. It has to be real. It has to be gritty sometimes. They're not opposite emotions. Genuine love for our brothers and sisters and all humans should lead to hatred of the things that degrade people. Agreed? Because the things that degrade people are offensive because they've been made in the image of God and therefore it's degrading the image of God. We have to hate that stuff. And we have to be against that stuff. Otherwise we're not practicing proper agape. God hates that stuff. Doesn't mean he doesn't love the people, even those people who are doing it, but he hates it. He hates their behavior. And so should we. And we should do that together. And it makes sense. If someone was hurting one of my child, I would hate that. I would abhor that action. Do you see that? That's agape, isn't it? It's not all just cuddles. Sometimes it's defense. Sometimes it's defense. I'd step in front of a moving car for my child. That's agape. And I'm sure you would too, those of you that have children. That's agape. That's what the Father did for us. That's what Jesus did for us. That's agape. And we should have that same sense of injustice. And we should cling to what is good. Psalm 97.10 says this, Let those who love the Lord hate evil. These things go hand in hand. Even better, listen to this one, Amos 5. You ready for this one? It's perfect. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Do you see how agape is a call for social action too? If we're going to do agape right, we have to care about social justice. We have to. Otherwise, we're not doing agape properly. I think that's a call for all of us. Now, you may well sit there now and say, gosh, how can I possibly do all these things? It is so difficult. It's so difficult. I find it hard to get on with my actual brother, let alone all these people that I don't know quite so well. You know, how on earth am I going to do that? Or maybe... You know, your experience of family love isn't positive. And I'm asking you to do something that you don't actually understand or feel like you don't understand or you don't know what that looks like. Now, I think Paul has a word for us there as well. Because in verse 11, he says this. 
Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now that all sounds really difficult. How is it possible for you or I to never lack in zeal? Do you ever come on a Sunday morning and lack a little bit in zeal? Anyone ever? Just me? Just me? Okay, one or two people. Yeah. Do you ever lack in spiritual fervor? Do you ever feel a little bit cold in your spirit? It's impossible for any individual to never lack in zeal. It is impossible for an individual to never lack in spiritual fervor. But together, but together, it's possible. Because we're like a heap of smoldering coals. And as long as some people are hot, then other people can absorb some of that heat. Do you see how it's impossible to do that on your own? When it says never be lacking in zeal, he's talking in the plural. He's talking to the, church, the community saying, you should empower one another. You should heat one another up. When it says lacking in zeal, the actual word there is being hot in the spirit. We should be hot in the spirit as much as we can be. And if we're stood next to somebody who's hot in the spirit, even if I'm feeling a bit cool, I will be ignited by that. And that's the other way that the church should work. Because there's no way we can do all this agape love without being hot in the spirit. And we can't be hot in the spirit on our own. It won't work. And I do feel for those people who feel like, yeah, I'm a committed believer, I believe in Jesus, but I, I just don't do church. I find that quite hard. Like, there are some Sundays where I don't want to do church, I'm sorry, there are. Some Sundays, you know, the idea of staying in bed and having a cup of tea, that sounds quite appealing. But I know that that is a dangerous path because I will not be able to keep my spiritual fervor and do all this stuff in the world and all this love without other people around me igniting me when I go cold. And that's why I think it's a virtuous cycle. We love each other, we power each other up in the spirit, and then we can do some of this stuff together. That's how it all should work. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to finish. Uh, last few thoughts. It's inspiring stuff though, isn't it? It's not, it's not easy. You know, sincere agape, that's a tough gig. It's a tough gig. And actually, you know what? God can do it. And Jesus did it and does it perfectly. We can't do it perfectly, but together we've got a better shot at getting most of it right, haven't we? Because we look to Christ as our example. Next slide, please, Pete. And just very quickly, just to prove the point, Christ is agape in the flesh. That's one of the brilliant things about his ministry is that he actually showed us. He came and became human and he said, look, let me show you what agape looks like. And God knows we can't do it the way that Christ did it because he's perfect. But he wanted to show us a human example of what agape looks like, walking and talking agape. So here is just some quick examples and you can do the study later if you like. So first of all, we've already heard 1 John 4 about the fact that the agape of God is embodied in sending his son in Christ. So that's the theological idea that that's agape in the flesh. But let's just go through our examples and just let's go through them. Ready, Pete? We'll do this quite quickly. Yeah, devotion and affection, brotherly love. Remember the first idea, family love? Well, when did Jesus do that? Loads of examples. One of my favorite ones is the restoring of Peter. Do you remember that he denies Christ three times? And he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Ah, oh, I love that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. Because if I'm Peter, it's like, oh, Jesus is just, mm, 
just massive hug moment and just the love restore 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 i don't want you because you're my brother and i love you i don't want you to feel bad i don't want you to feel broken yeah you got it wrong but it's okay i'm going to restore you and i love that moment and i think that's a moment of brotherly affection and love restoring someone that you love that is love of family and actually we can see in jesus's relationships with his disciples that he had that family love with them didn't he And he loved them in really practical, meaningful ways. So there's one example of Jesus loving like family. Next one. (laughs) Perfect example. How do we honor one another? What did we say? I go low, you go high. Well, when he washes their feet, what a wonderful moment that was. I go low, you go high. So much so, not I, Lord, you're not washing my feet. You know, no, you've got to let me do this because this is agape in action, and if you don't want a piece of this, you're not in my family, because you've got to get that that's what this family does. That's the way we work in our family. Such a brilliant moment, isn't it, when he washes their feet. Yeah, next one. Yeah, the feeding of the 5,000, and other examples when he does practical stuff. You know, they run out of wine at a wedding. Okay, here's some wine. You know, loads of people are hungry because they've been following you. And they didn't bring their packed lunches. What are we going to do? They didn't expect to be out this long. That's okay. That's okay. Let's meet their need. Yeah? Hospitality. You see that? Brilliant. Yeah, that one. Hospitality. Brilliant. Yeah, that picture in the background there is the moment when the lady who comes to the feast and she, she cries on Jesus' feet and anoints his feet and dries his feet with the hair. Do you remember? And it's such a brilliant moment about hospitality because the others are all outraged. And Jesus says, hang on. You didn't welcome me properly. And yet this woman really did, and I am welcoming her into this feast, and she's going to have the most intimate place at the table, which is right next to me. And he practiced hospitality to somebody, a stranger, a xenos, somebody who's outside, and he says, come in. That's agape in action. Jesus is just so amazing. Next one. Yeah, driving out the moneylenders. Remember this, this moment? Hating what is evil. You know, Jesus was crucified because he called out things that were evil. He called out hypocrisy. He said, that's not agape. That's not the design that my father had for human beings. You're all getting this wrong. And by doing this money thing, you're excluding some people from God's presence, and that's evil, and I'm going to drive that out. That's agape in action. And that is a righteous anger or a hatred or an abhorrence, how to say that, an abhorrence for hypocrisy and evil in the world. And that's not soft and fuzzy, is it? That's agape. That's the teeth of agape that we need to have as well. Next one. And then, of course, the cross. Could you get a better example of real, unhypocritical love but the cross? It's the ultimate example of agape, isn't it? I love you so much that I'm going to do something to show you. And I'm going to do something at huge cost to myself. Because that's what agape is. That's what agape does. It's not a fuzzy feeling. I'm going to do it. And in Ephesians 5, we hear this. Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
I'll put another way in Romans 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is agape just in a nutshell just embodied and lived out on this earth at great pain and cost. And he did that for you and me, partly to redeem us, but also to bring us into a family. And then he says to us, now you go do likewise. And we need each other to help with that, don't we, along the way. So let's let our minds be transformed. Let's not think of love as something that's expressed in roses and cards and fuzzy gestures, and love songs. Let's see love as something that has teeth. Let's see love as something that we share among us. Let's see love as something that is family, that is unconditional, devoted, affectionate, that's welcoming, that's practical. Because if we get that right as a church, then we are reflecting the image of God, and people will see Jesus. Amen? Amen.